passion is not something you discover. Passion is something you cultivate and earn by playing at the intersection of multiple curiosities and accumulating little wins, little win after little win after little win. This is how we grow passion. We make this crazy mistake. We do it to ourselves all the time where we're like, oh, I just haven't found my passion yet. You're lying. If you know three or four things you're curious about and start playing at the intersection of those things for years on end, you're going to get passion. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hey, everyone, welcome to the Mind Valley podcast. <laughs> I'm live right now with Stephen Butler. We're in front of a live audience. 556 people are here with us. I just hit the record button because so many gems are pouring out of this man's mouth. And I cannot wait to get this podcast recording to you. Now, for those of you who don't know Stephen Kotler, you probably have been living under a rock in some ways because he is one of my favorite authors. Over the last 10 years, Stephen Kotler has churned out hit after hit after hit. He co-authored Bold with Peter Diamandis, Abundance with Peter Diamandis. I one point in 2013 called Abundance, my favorite book of the year. More recently, he wrote Stealing Fire on how Altered States has become a trillion dollar economy. That book was so powerful, it inspired me to launch a festival an A-Fest on the theme of Altered States in Jamaica. Stephen joined us for that, and he showed me effective ways of entering Altered States that I had no, <laughs> never heard about. Stephen's latest book is out soon on Amazon. In fact, by the time you get this podcast, it is probably out. It is The Art of the Impossible, a peak performance primer. The Art of Impossible, a peak performance primer. Now, here's what's really funny. As we're recording this, we're looking at this book on Amazon, and it is number one the number one new release in, get this, guys, the mate-seeking category. Mate-seeking. It's a subcategory of relationships. Stephen, I'm laughing about this. Mate-seeking. How does the out of impossible lead to mate-seeking? So I don't actually have any idea how that happened because mate-seeking is right. It's relationships, formal scientific no, it's, it's study not, of relationships. It's not relationships. No, no, no. I can tell you. I'm looking at what is it? language, right? It's a big corporation. There's relationships as a category, then there's interpersonal relationships, love and romance, marriage and long-term relationships, then mate-seeking. Mate-seeking is Amazon corporate speak for getting laid. Really? Oh, that's yeah. even better. That's even more appropriate. Okay. Yeah, I have no idea how that happened at all. But it happened literally, we noticed, like right after we started our actual mm -hmm. book campaign a month or two ago, it happened very early on. And the only thing I could think is what I started to tell you. And I said this early on in an interview, The Art of Impossible is a book about how do you take on high, hard, impossible challenges, right? And it's lessons learned from people who have accomplished capital I impossible, that which has never been done. But it's really a book about how do you and me and everybody else accomplish small I impossible, that which we believe is impossible for us. And in the book, I give a bunch of examples, right? I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I wanted to be a writer. Cleveland in the 1970s when I was growing up was a blue-collar steel mill town. I had no idea how to become a writer. I didn't know any writers. It was like I woke up one morning and said, Mom, Dad, when I grow up, I want to be an elf, right? Like no idea how you go about doing that thing. That's a small lie impossible because there's no clear path between point A and point B. So is overcoming trauma, rising out of poverty, becoming world-class at anything you do. But I always, I've said this, and this is where I think it comes from. The first small eye impossible most of us accomplish in our lives is we get our first kiss, right? Like remember being 10, 11, 12 years old, and actually you were interested in getting your hands on somebody, male, female, chimpanzee, whatever, somebody. And you had, I mean, I would have given you an, my right arm at that time for, you know, a date. And if you're saying mate seeking is not just a first kiss, but actually getting laid for the first time, for a lot of people, that's a giant mystery. It is. It's biologically what we are hardwired to do. This is why your book right now, pre-release, is right next to The Art of Seduction, Missing Each Other. I'm looking at the other titles. You're um, not making me feel better and, and about myself, this, and get by this. the way. Recovering what? from Narcissistic Mothers. Oh, well, that, that, by the way, is a serious impossible. People oh, in the chat uh, laughing their asses off right now. 
Gemma just said, why not change the name to The Art of Being Fuckwithable? <laughs> so, Stephen, firstly, you're such a brilliant mind. Let's talk about some of the key ideas in this book. As I said, it's a book about how do you go after high art challenges. I want to point out, by the way, that I'm going to talk about peak performance. When I say peak performance, I mean peak performance is nothing more or less, I guess, than getting your biology to work for you rather than against you. That's all we're talking about, right? And because it's our biology, that's a limited set of tools. It's not as wide open as you possibly mean. For example, flow is optimal performance. It optimizes the entire system. Mm -hmm. And we know what it optimizes. Motivation, productivity, grit, creativity, creative problem solving, learning, cooperation, collaboration, empathy, a couple other things. And we could talk about why we have that suite, but that's actually the full suite of what can be optimized. When we're talking about peak performance, that's it. That's the extent of how far we go. And that is a couple of things that are really crucial here, I guess. One is that is available to everyone. Flow is universal, and Flow so is, is all okay. the amplifications that's underneath our biology. So huge leaps in performance are biologically available to everyone and not nearly as hard to access as most people think. Let's examine that. Huge leaps in performance are biologically available to everyone and not nearly as hard to access as most people think. And, and what you're talking about is that, okay, so our cognitive abilities measured by that idea of IQ may be at a certain threshold. We may think maybe we're not good at, say, X or Y or Z, but you're saying that this flow state, this flow state, which is the state of absolute productivity, there are common biological ways to get there? Yes, I can clarify that. What I mean literally is the entire cognitive peak performance toolkit is four sets of skills. There's motivation skills. Now, this is a skill set. There are a bunch of things that fall under the term mm -hmm. motivation. We can talk about what that means. There's learning skills, there's creativity skills, and there's flow skills. That's the full suite. And the way to think about it easily is, and we all know this, motivation gets us into the game. Learning allows us to continue to play. Creativity is how we steer, especially when you don't know how exactly you're going to get to where you're going, right? A high, hard goal. I'm not quite sure how to get there. Creativity is how you steer there. And flow amplifies all of this, all these skill sets until your results are beyond all your reasonable expectations. So this I, is I what flow that. is amplifying. That. Let's repeat that because that was a beautiful way of breaking it down, breaking down things which can seem confusing. Motivation gets you into the game. Learning lets you play. Creativity helps you steer and flow amplifies everything. To reduce all the results. Yep. There's some more stuff going on. And let's, just for clarity's sake, because motivation is a catch-all term. When psychologists use motivation, they mean extrinsic motivation like money, sex, fame, things we go after in the real world. Internal motivators, intrinsic motivators, curiosity, passion, purpose, right? Internal motivators. They also mean grit and goals. So when you say motivation, you're actually talking about those four sets of skills. And here's the other thing that I want to mention, because it's good to know this up front. When I said we can get farther faster, right? Like if you get your biology working for you rather than against you, really get farther faster. A couple key points, and this is really recent information. This is stuff that neuroscientists have started to figure out over the past five years. This is why a book like The Art of Impossible is possible. What we're starting to figure out is one, that sequence I gave you, motivation into learning, into creativity, into flow, it's actually an order. That's the biological, that's how we evolve to learn this stuff. So if you train the stuff in the order that it's supposed to go, you get farther faster. And the easiest way to drill down and take it to a practical, what's he talking about level, is just to talk a little bit about motivation. Extrinsic motivation, when you're trying to motivate a human being, you got to take care of safety and security needs first, right? Maslow wasn't wrong about that level of the hierarchy. If you're worried about rent, if you're worried about food, right, those kinds of concerns, your own safety, there's too much anxiety in the system. It totally blocks everything. So the research shows you just need to cover basic security needs, have a little left over for fun. What happens then is money, sex, these things will go after them, but they don't motivate us into better performance and better productivity and the things like the brass tack stuff we really want in our lives, at that point, you have to turn to intrinsic motivators. Curiosity is the first one. It's the most basic motivator we have. 
And motivation is one of these terms that gets very confusing to people out in the real world. Like, why does it matter? What is it, et cetera, et cetera. Motivation is essentially the energy for action. But here's the big deal with motivation. Internal motivation. There's not a whole lot of, when you're faced with a task, you've got the action, the task requires, and, the, and your focus, right? And the action, the task requires, there's not much change possible there. The thing is the thing is the thing. If you're going to go bowling, you're still going to have to go bowling. The action is the action. Focus is where we have a lot of leverage. Your brain at rest consumes 25% of your energy, huge energy hog, but it's 2% of your mass. Curiosity and all these intrinsic motivators, they give us focus for free. That's the really big deal here. When you're curious about something, when you're passionate about something, when something's involved in your purpose and aligned with your values, you pay a ton of attention to it automatically. It happens. So curiosity is the first intrinsic motivator. It's designed biologically to be built into passion. This is some of the work that we did together in the Habit of Ferocity class. It sort of starts here. In your book, you talk about impossible. Now, for those of you who are listening, Stephen has a website. You don't have to go to the Amazon page and get distracted by all the other oh, yeah. speaking books out there. Go to theartofimpossible.com, theartofimpossible.com. I'm such a big fan of Stephen Kotler's work. I definitely cannot wait to read this book. You can pre-order it on theartofimpossible.com and you get $1,500 worth of peak performance tools and trainings free with every pre-order. So let's give our best support to Stephen. And as a Mind Valley teacher, let's help him get this book in the New York Times. How many New York Times bestsellers have you had so far, Stephen? Three. This would be four. Awesome. Well, screw you. I'm at two. So you already won ahead. Yeah, but I've also written 13 books. So you're really behind the curve here, man. Uh, so let's talk about the word impossible, because in your work, you said that there's impossible with a capital I and impossible with a lowercase I. What does that mean? Impossible, capital I, that which has never been done. This is what I've spent my career studying. And this could be action sport athletes who are leaping the biggest cliffs we've ever seen or surfing the biggest waves. This could be maverick innovators taking sci-fi ideas and turning them into sci-fi technology. This could be businessmen, Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos, men who built impossible business empires in record time, right? All these things. That's what I spent studying. That's what the lessons are learned from, drawn from, and my work on the neurobiology of peak performance. As I said, it's meant to be used by anybody interested in small eye impossible, that which you believe is impossible for you. And there, as you pointed out, there is a formula. It's motivation into learning, into creativity, into flow, in that order, trained up in a very specific way to get the biology working most effectively for you rather than against you. That's the core of this book. And you touched on something. You said it earlier. I wanted to return to it because it's so important. What 30 years of research and peak performance and doing all this work has taught me is we are all capable of so much more than we know. But human potential is invisible, especially to ourselves. So, Stephen, I want you to ask the audience to write this down, okay? Big lesson number one. This is a key lesson in the book. We are all capable of so much more than we know. Please continue. And human capability, human potential is invisible, especially to ourselves. And let me give two examples of why it's invisible, especially to ourselves. One is that you can only figure out what you're capable of by stretching and pushing your skills and using them to the utmost again and again and again, right? That's how you actually figure out what you're capable of. And until you've pushed your current skill sets to the edge of ability, jumped into the next one, into the next one, you don't know what's possible because you've not done it enough, right? Like that's why that's the edge of your ability, A. And B, this research shows, and this is some of Adam Grant's work. A lot of people have worked on this. David Epstein worked on this as well. The research shows very, very clearly that we have no idea what things in the world we're going to like or be good at until we try them. Meaning like, even if you're a world-class athlete, you're LeBron James. I go up to LeBron and I say, Bron, how do you think you do at lacrosse? If he hasn't played lacrosse, he is neither going to be able to tell me, is he going to be good at it or is he going to like it? So we literally, we don't know what we're going to be good at. We don't know what we're going to be like, and we don't know what we're capable of unless we go for it and try, which is a really key point. So no matter how limited you think your world is that you're living in, you're totally wrong. 
You have to get out to the edge of your skill sets and start unlocking what Stephen Johnson so eloquently calls the adjacent possible. I like that. The adjacent possible, the adjacent possible. I also love the concept of the big eye and the small eye. So in the book, one of the things you say, there's a second big lesson. Everyone is hired for peak performance. You touched on that and you said it's the impossible is about doing the impossible is about the proper application of four skill sets, motivation, learning, creativity, and flow, motivation, learning, creativity, and flow. Is there a particular method or sequence to that application? Yes, at every level. So it's easiest done with intrinsic motivation, right? Mm -hmm. Curiosity is designed to be built into passion. If you can find the intersection of multiple curiosities, where three or four of the things that you're really interested in intersect, that's the seed kernel of passion. It grows in a very specific way. We're not going to go into it. But once you've grown passion, you're designed to attach that passion to a purpose, a cause greater than yourself. And there are biological evolutionary reasons for this. And they're, even though purpose sounds very altruistic in the world, it's actually from a performance standpoint, very, very, very selfish. It gives us way more motivation. Once you have purpose, what do you need? Autonomy, the freedom to pursue your purpose. And once you have the freedom to pursue your purpose, what do you need next? Mastery, the skills to pursue that purpose well. And once you have mastery, what do you need next? Well, where the fuck am I going? Goals. What does the research show? We need three levels of goals. You need mission level goals for your life. You need high hard goals that are gradual steps that take you to that mission. And then you need clear goals, your daily to-do lists feed into your high hard goals that feed into your mission, that feed back into mastery, autonomy, purpose, passion, curiosity, blah, blah. And when you get all that together, then you need to start training in grit skills. You don't want to do it until then, because here's why. Once you get all those things going together, those are all flow triggers. Autonomy is a flow trigger. Mastery is a flow trigger. Passion is a flow trigger. Purpose is a flow trigger. Mm-hmm. So once you start getting flow, flow feels really good, right? It really it increases motivation. And what it does is it also sort of trains up grit a little bit automatically. So then you want to start training grit because otherwise... Grit is really, as you know, it's hard to train. It sucks. You just have to push through and be gritty. And if you do that too early in the process, you'll drop out. You'll give up. You have to, if you do it in this order, you're already starting to get the feel-good neurochemistry from flow that is designed to make training grit biologically easier. There are six layers of grit that need to be trained. And once you got that, you have the habit of ferocity. This is the course we did together, right? Right. How to cultivate that. And from that point, we go into a set of learning tools and then a set of creativity tools. And they all work this way. And flow is sort of built into all of these things. The more you get these sequences right, the more flow your life is going to produce along the way. And flow, like these are already great skills, right? But flow is really how you turbo boost the whole thing because it's such a big lift. I love that. I love that. Now, what I want to do here, for those of you who are Mindvalley members, you can go to insights.mindvalley.com. And as we are reading this book, I'm going to be reading this book as well. Don't forget to share your notes, share your insights with fellow members on (laughs) insights.mindvalley.com. We now have a link to a book feature. So your journals, your notes, you can link it to the book and you can choose to keep it personal or make it public. I'd love to read about your insights, your observations, your thoughts as you go through Stephen's book. I'm going to be doing the same. If you follow me on insights.mindvalley.com, you'll be able to see my insights on the art of the impossible. Now, Stephen, there are so many interesting ideas in this book, but I know how your mind works and everything. There's a mathematical precision to how you put these ideas together. I know that for those of you who are listening, if you're wondering how all of the dots connect, just trust me and get the book. Stephen's books are always good. But I want to also open up questions to the audience. So what people are resonating with and what people may want you to expand upon. For those of you who are here, and we are at 600 people live, I want you to click Q&A on Zoom, type in your question. You will also see other people's questions. Go do that right now. And if you see a really good question that you feel resonates with you, vote it up. So you can vote up questions. And I'm going to bring up three of you to directly interview Stephen with me and ask your most pressing question. Stephen, can you see the questions? I can. So the first question It is by Bianca. 
Okay, so Bianca D. So Bianca, I'm going to bring you up to ask the question directly yourself to Stephen. And this is a really important question. A lot of people are voting this up. So yeah. Bianca, I'm making you a panelist. Welcome to the stage. Hello. Hello, everyone. Oh, Bianca nice is a community manager, world <laughs> karate champion. Awesome. Nice to see you here. Hey, Bianca. Hello. Hello, Stephen. So my question to you was, what do you recommend us as a practice after we have a loss in our personal life or also business? Because we need to go back in our normal lives like faster. So that's the point. So can I ask a couple more questions? One, there's a grief period. Whenever we go through any loss, there's a period of grief, business, personal, whatever it is. It's worth pointing out with grief, like until the 20th century, grief was literally classified as a mental illness. And as a guy, like I run a dog sanctuary, we do hospice care and special needs care. We have a lot of death, constant. And I can tell you that when an animal dies, I won't make any crucial decisions for at least a week because I know I'm literally crazy. I'm not thinking straight. Like I don't have my faculties. Other losses can be a lot deeper, can last a little bit longer. So one, I would say get through that grieving process because you're going to want your faculties around you before you're going to reboot. Everybody's going to be a little bit different. You'll sort of have to feel your way through it. But I want to start there because otherwise you're just going to try to leap in and you're either going to bury the emotions and they're going to come up some fucked up way later on, or you're going to create conditions for burnout, which is really what you're sort of trying to avoid. That was the second question I had. If you're asking me how to reboot your life after a loss, that's one answer. If you're saying I'm really, really burned out and I need to jump back into business life, that's a slightly longer answer. But the place to start is the same. So I'll start there. Most of us have what's known as a primary flow activity. This is whatever you did, probably as a kid, probably throughout your life, that you absolutely love that produces the most flow. For me, it was skiing, meaning when I go skiing, 90% of the time, it's going to drop me into flow. I don't need to like do the work, do anything. It just, for some people, it was gardening or horseback riding or dancing to hip hop or giving speeches or meditate, whatever it was, whatever it is, you really want to double down on that one. And there's three reasons, there are four possible reasons. But the first is that as we move into flow, there's a resetting of our nervous system. There's a global release of nitric oxide. It's a gas signaling molecule. It flushes stress hormones out of our system. So automatically calms you down, right? Really important. And bonus, by the way, because any kind of grief process, as you probably are aware, is sort of hell on your immune system. And flow will boost your immune system a little bit because the neurochemicals that underpin it our immunological boosters. So one, two, flow is a focusing skill, right? So it's similar to mindfulness, doing different things with the brain, but not all that different, meaning the more flow you get, the more flow you get. So getting flow by going surfing on Monday is going to give you more flow on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday when you're at work. Three, and this is not my work, this was work done at Harvard. We know flow boosts creativity 400 to 700%, depending on whose numbers you're looking at. But Teresa Mabla at Harvard figured out that that heightened creativity, creative problem solving, will outlast the flow state by a day, maybe two. Now, this is a really big deal if you are trying to reboot your life after a loss, because you sort of are going to have to puzzle solve your way out of it. And one of the problems with anxiety which is one of the things triggered by loss, is it blocks creativity. It does something to the anterior cingulate cortex that doesn't allow the ACC to find far-flung connections between ideas. So you get your thoughts loop and you go to the same places, right? That's why anxiety often feels like OCD. You're like, I can't stop thinking about this goddamn thing. It's literally this part of your brain and it's trying to be helpful. It's trying to say, oh, you're really in a bad situation. Let's not worry you with too many choices. Let's give you some simple options that may have worked in the past, right? But that's really bad if you're trying to problem solve your way out of a loss. So this one thing, doubling down on your primary flow activity, and this is one that we often feel is indulgent, right? As adults, when we get, you know, spouses and kids and jobs, what do we put down? We stop doing that thing, right? childish behaviors. I put away the surfboard. I hung up my skateboard. I'm not a roller derby participant anymore. I don't know what you call a roller derby, somebody. There's a name for that that I wanted. I can't get to it. But anyways, you get my point. So one, I would just literally start by, and especially when you're grieving, 
it's hard to feel like you have the energy to go do it. Like you just don't want to do it. And in a sense, you want to do it anyways. It really is sort of the fastest way to healing. I always like jokingly always tell people that um, this is not entirely a joke, but the fastest way to get over heartbreak is to go skydiving because the experience is so powerful and the flow state it will produce, it will overwrite. The problem with grief or loss or anything like that is that the way the brain works, almost everything in your world links back memory-wise through the associative cortexes to the thing that hurt you, right? Like when somebody you love is gone and you're walking through the house, every single thing around you reminds you of them, right? You have to literally overlay those new memories. And the way you overlay memories is create a whole bunch of neurochemicals, right? That will overlay the patterns of going skydiving, doing something that like forces the brain to go, holy crap, this is worse than that. You just fell out of a plane, right? It overwrites the pain. You get a little bit of space. Mindfulness does that same process just very slowly. It's the same thing as going on, but it's just taking more time. I'm not telling you to go skydiving, by the way. That would be irresponsible. Actually, this is my wish for the next year on my birthday. So skydiving. You said that. <laughs> I well, my chief scientist is a skydiver and a base jumper and tandem jumps people. And so I even know a guy who can take you skydiving, but you got to get yourself to Nevada. And Bianca, I know recently you had a situation where you were trapped in an avalanche or something and you rescued a bunch of other skiers in Romania. Someday when you're back on this community, you got to tell us about that near-death experience, how you survived and how you not only survived, but you rescued other people. Bianca is one of our community managers and she basically just survived a crazy situation in a ski slope in Romania just a couple of weeks ago, right? Yeah, on the 31st of December. I'm happy to see you here and proud of you. Thank you, Bianca. Let's go on to the next question. If you've enjoyed this podcast, consider joining Mind Valley All Access. Now you can sign up to Mind Valley All Access and unlock every Mind Valley program instantly. Get access to transformation from all of the world's best minds in everything from parenting to biohacking to mind, body, spirit, entrepreneurship, work productivity. Learn from the likes of Ben Greenfield, Jim Quick, Shafali Sabari, Stephen Kotler, and more. All available to you for less than $2 a day. Simply visit mindvalley.com forward slash now. That's mindvalley.com forward slash N-O-W. And you'll be surprised to see that Mindvalley All Access now comes with advanced technologies to completely transform your learning, your networks, and your human connections, including our new private social network for students, Connections by Mindvalley, and our altered state inducement app, Ombana, which complements our regular training with altered state methodologies to transform you at a subconscious level. Check it all out on mindvalley.com forward slash N-O-W. Mindvalley.com forward slash now. So the next question is from Yuri, Yuri Minsky. Yuri, I'm going to bring you live. Yuri, you are now a panelist. Go ahead and ask your question. And this question, Stephen, is about children, really. And a lot of people are commenting that this is such an important question. Hi, Yuri. Hi, Vishen. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Yuri, how you doing? Hi. My question is, I have two teenage children, and they seem to be interested in a lot of different things to try them. Travel, movies, sports, but they never seem to be making the transition to something they're passionate about. So is that a problem for you, or is that a problem for them? Sounds like this is a problem for you. Check out The Art of Impossible, by the way, because there's a whole chapter on learning, there's a whole section on what's known as what you're looking at is actually one of the hallmarks of success. So specialization and the whole cult of early specialization does not actually lead to success. The data is overwhelmingly clear that it's a really bad thing for kids. That's mind-blowing to me, and it's so counterintuitive. If you're saying, if my kid is learning the violin and specializing in music, that actually is going to be counter to her success? Range. Range. This is the book you want. David Epstein, who wrote The Sports Gene, one of the smartest guys in the world, 
David's worked on this, I've worked on this, and Adam Grant has been working on this. And what we know is that one of the hallmarks of most successful people is there is a long search for what is literally called in economics, match quality. Match quality means there is a perfect fit between who I am as a person, my skills, and my strengths, and my values. And it's basically you got to figure out, do you love this thing? And you're one of the things that most people really forget. And it's worth telling your kids this too, because kids don't get this either. Passion, when you think about athletic passion, for example, right, you're going to think like LeBron James coming in for a windmill donk scowl on his face in the finals. And that's later stage passion. That's early stage passion is a little kid in a driveway, shooting a ball through a hoop, trying to get baskets to fall. That's what early stage passion looks like and feels like. Passion is not something you discover. Passion is something you cultivate and earn by playing at the intersection of multiple curiosities and accumulating little wins, little win after little win after little win. This is how we grow passion, but it is, we make this crazy mistake. We do it to ourselves all the time where we're like, oh, I just haven't found my passion yet. You're lying. If you know three or four things you're curious about and start playing at the intersection of those things for years on end, you're going to get passion. What you're really saying is, I'm really impatient and I want to be there now. So I'm mad that I don't have this thing inside me that feels like you know, the same fire that Steven or Vision or whoever you're looking at and saying, look at their passion. I want that. We earned it. I'm 54 years old. I earned my passion over a long period of time. But if you met me when I was 13 or 15 or 28 or 35, it sure as hell didn't look like this. Wow, that is so counterintuitive. Yuri, what are your thoughts on what Stephen just said? How would you react to that? It sounds like you uh, pick something you like and it's a journey to get into passion. Well, literally neurobiologically, it's a journey, right? Like what we call passion is the neurochemicals, dopamine and norepinephrine, right? Like those are what are kindled, but it's really like those neurochemicals showing up again and again and again and again. And each of those is thought of is like a little win for the brain, right? And that's how you sort of cement it in, but it doesn't take, it doesn't happen overnight. So I'm going to put something into, and give this to your kids, let them play with this. In the book, there's something called the passion recipe. This is how do you turn curiosity into passion, passion into purpose? We turned it into a really cool interactive worksheet that I'm putting in the chat right now, passionrecipe.com. Mm-hmm. Just send them there. It's free. It's an interactive worksheet. Anybody can use it. But it really, actually, it's the formula for how do you cultivate curiosity and turn it into passion. But one of the things I tell people in there is, in a lot of aspects of peak performance, not everywhere, but a lot of it, you've got to go slow to go fast. Flow is a huge amplification, right? You're going to get 500% more productivity, 700% more learning. It's huge. It's massive. So you can afford to slow down to lay the solid foundation. And you want it there. One of the reasons I wrote The Art of Impossible is we discovered that flow using the neurobiological triggers remarkably easy to train. I can take pretty much anybody, put them through my zero to dangerous training, and I can tell you you're going to get 70 to 80% boost in flow on the back end. The neurobiology is that consistent. What we started to discover is I can do this to almost anybody, but I can't stabilize it. You'll go way up and then you're going to drop back to baseline and it has nothing to do with flow It has to do with you haven't cemented in the motivation, learning, and creativity skills, all the stuff that flow amplifies. If those things are also really, really learned, you can't hold the acceleration of flow. You can't stabilize the experience, and you end up returning to baseline. So it's really worth taking the time to figure out what am I passionate about? Because the worst thing for motivation is to be like two years into a passion to be like, oh, dude, it was only a phase. I don't actually want to, you know, spend the rest of my life studying dinosaurs. I was wrong. That's really demotivating. Thanks so much for asking such a powerful question. Thank Thank you. you. And as a father of two kids, I think that answer from Stephen was really relevant to me as well. Please give a round of applause to Yuri and Bianca. So Stephen, you know, in your book, you talk a lot about the art of the impossible. You talk a lot about these outliers who are doing these impossible things. I just bought the book. I haven't had a chance to read the book yet because it's not out till the 19th. 
But my question to you is, you know, so many people look up to Elon Musk right now. He's the guy who seems to be doing the impossible in so many ways. He recently became the world's richest man. He's literally doing such great work. Elon's mom was recently on the same podcast, giving her insights on what made Elon, Elon. I'm curious to know, I'm curious to know, just because we had Elon's mom two weeks ago, what do you think is going on in Elon's mind? How is he able to do what he does? What I've said a lot for a long time is that you know, I spent my career studying extraordinary people. Very few of them started out extraordinary, right? They became extraordinary over time. Every now and again, then you meet somebody whose brain does that thing where you're just like, oh crap, I don't, my brain doesn't do that. Elon's got one of those, I've met Elon, he's got one of those brains a little bit. It's very, very fast. And so some of it, he is a hugely intelligent man. That's genetics. But everything else, by the way, one of the things I'll tell you is this is my favorite one about Elon. And this is every peak performer I've ever met. Every top performer I've ever met is running from something just as fast as they're running towards something, right? And Elon had a horrific childhood, really, really difficult upbringing. And that double motivation, right? Especially if you can use that pain, that fear, that whatever to draw it, it's very, because it's hard to get anywhere, especially someplace impossible, right? It's, it's hard to go and the road is long and it's hard for everybody, right? Rich, poor, black, white, doesn't matter. It's hard for everybody. We all have the same emotional systems. And if it's hard inside of you, it's hard inside of somebody else, right? It's hard here in general. And that double motivation is actually really useful. So it's funny because a lot of the stuff that you think, oh, wow, this is really going to hurt me, it actually doesn't. You know, like one of the things that I'll, that I'll tell you that I also find is funny is, you know, who often has the hardest time in life and in peak performance is people who had a really easy time in high school. If you were like the best looking kid in your high school, and everything, and a great athlete, and everything came naturally and easily to you, those tend to be the people who have the toughest time with the rest of their life because you can't sustain that. That level of easy is not sustainable. I've had easy decades. I've had hard decades, right? Like most people have over time or hard three-year slots and have your, take your pick, meaning like, but if your childhood, your earliest foundational memories are, oh, it's supposed to be really easy here, and then you actually get to life and find out that, oh my God, there's nothing easy here, you're now playing from way behind the eight ball. People who grew up gritty and harder and it was tougher, you're better off for it. So I don't have the answer yeah. on Elon. I think Elon's brain can do something that I can't, no, know, but some of us can't do, but take a lot from his childhood and that kind of stuff. There's definitely some interesting things though. Elon's mom, Mae Musk, when she was on a podcast, she spoke about the abuse she went through, the abuse her family went through. And so she shared that with our audience here and it was, it was striking. I never known that. But what you're saying about how going through tough times makes you a better performer. There was a study cited by Salim Ismail in his book, Exponential Organizations, about a survey Google did on their top people. And they found that the top people were not people who necessarily had an Ivy League degree. Rather, it was young people who had gone through some suffering or trauma in their early years. And it had left them kinder, more humble, more open to listening, more compassionate, and they were Google's top performers. So I think what you're saying, there's a lot of evidence for that. It's not just, you know, the spiritual idea of suffering making us stronger. Let's go on to a couple of other questions. So I would like to ask some questions that I got from your team. So some of these are really mysterious. I'm supposed to ask you the following. What is AOI? What exactly Art is- of impossible. Art of the, it's ah, the acronym okay. for the book. Okay. This is also really mysterious because I'm just told to ask this to you. Okay. You say that it's not sexy. What do you mean by that? Oh, yeah. Okay. So this is actually a, a good point. And I think you'll get it really fast, which is, so at the Flow Research Collective and the Art of Impossible, I don't really go in for technologies or substances. I want something that's reliable, repeatable, going to work all the time for mm-hmm. everybody, right? So you don't have to like, if you get caught in a crisis situation, you're not like, oh, I got to take this thing or use this technology to get my brain right to problem mm-hmm. want. But what the stuff we teach, the psychological kind of triggers, the grit skills, the motivational skills, the flow skills, none of it is sexy. 
I always like to say that there is zero, there's nothing I'm going to teach you that is going to get you laid when you talk about it in a bar on Friday night. It's just not gonna. It's just, it, and it's a big problem because people, especially come in today, they want something sexy. They want, oh, I'm icing my testicles to increase testosterone. I mean, like, okay, you're whatever, right? This is, that's a real thing. That's a real thing. People do that. That, yeah, we're not even going to talk about it, but like people want that kind of stuff, right? I've got this biohack and look at me, but it's fucking dumb. One, it's not the real shit. And two, so one person did point out when I said this, they're like, look, your stuff is going to make you hella successful and that's really sexy. So, okay, maybe long-term you will get laid from my stuff, but short-term it's really, it's not about that. And the biggest problem is it's so unsexy that nobody, people don't believe it's going to work. But you have to remember when we're talking about getting your biology to work for you rather than against you, evolution shaped our biology millions of years ago, millions of years ago. So you're talking about tools that were essentially designed to be used on the African veldt that we're repurposing in our modern world. So yes, they seem really, really simple and they feel like they're going to lack massive amounts of power. And yet they're the very things. They're really powerful. So that's what they mean by it's not sexy unless they were talking about, no, we're going to, we're going to just stop there. No, you're going to make an inappropriate joke. Make the I joke. Was. And I was. And I, and I refrained. You see People that? People are saying they love you because you're so real and natural. And you're Mostly, the I just have a really good time hanging out with you. I'm not really this pleasant. Ask my wife. It's just that I really like vision. No, I got to say, Stephen's actually one of the nicest people I know. Do you know he runs a sanctuary for abandoned dogs, specifically chihuahuas? It's just so cool to meet a guy who takes care of animals in this way. And Stephen, not many people know that about you. You're super humble about it, but you know that's why I'm a fan. Okay, next question. What is the habit of ferocity? You have a program on Mind Valley. Yeah. The 600 people live with us, all of Mind Valley members, go check out Habit of Ferocity. It's an amazing program. You all have access to it. It's part of your Mind Valley membership. But Stephen, define Habit of Ferocity. Perfect. So earlier, we talked about the whole sequence of motivation into the three layers of goals into grit, right? Into the six layers of grit. When you get all that done, what you end up getting is what I call the Habit of Ferocity. And there's a couple points that are tucked into this that are really, this is a great place for us to end too, because I see we're running out of time, but this is a really good final point, which is habit of ferocity is literally the ability to automatically lean in to any problem that arises. And here's the big deal. And this, so not here's this, and let me return to the earlier, it's not sexy. There's a second part to it that makes it even worse. It works like compound interest. It's a little bit today, a little bit tomorrow. That's right. Peak performance requires a little bit more effort today, a little bit more tomorrow. And when you really start getting the results, months and months and months and often years in, what do those results look like? The habit of frosty is a great example. So what does the habit of frosty look like in the real world? Most people, we did a survey. We found out that most businessmen and women encounter about five big problems a day got to solve about five heavy, like the issue shows up and you're like, whoa, you know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. And most people, when they encounter a problem, this is a natural biological reaction. They get freaked out. They dither. They're like, oh shit, I got a deal. I got to Like they make a phone call. They walk around, they smoke a cigarette, they whatever. And then like five minutes later, they're like, okay, I got to do this anyways. And then they get busy. People with the habit of frosty just get busy and you're saving five minutes of problem. What's the big deal? Five problems a day. It's 25 minutes a day, three and a half hours a week. It's three and a half weeks a year. So people often see peak performers and they're like, how the hell did they get so far ahead of everybody else? Like the Elon Musk in the world, right? When you look at a guy like that and you're like, how, how? it happened five minutes at a time. It happened through compound interest, right? Flow works the same way. Flow will turbo boost that even further. But, but just those, you know, getting all your intrinsic motivations all this stuff stacked correctly, you get a lot of other stuff. But one of the things you're going to get back is about a month, a year that you're not going to spend dicking around. Put in a slightly different sort of more basic terms. I love this. I wish I had said this. I didn't. It's Dr. Andrew Huberman, who's at Stanford. He's a neuroscientist we do a lot of work with. He put it this way. He said, you know, the thing that every peak performer knows that nobody else seems to get 
is that no matter what the situation is, it's always crawl, walk, run. Peak performers get this, that you're always going to crawl before you walk and you're always going to walk before you run. Most people come into situations and they're like, oh, dude, I'm not, I don't, I don't crawl, man. That's just not me. And I don't really walk. I'm going to start, I'm going to find a hack. I'm going to come in in a jog. And they dick around for a month or two months looking for a damn shortcut. And peak performers show up and they're like, oh yeah, I'm going to suck. It's going to suck. And then I'm going to get better. And then I'm going to get better than that, right? And every peak performer, everybody, learning is always the same for everybody. It's I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck. Oh, look, I don't suck. Because the process is invisible. It's the adaptive unconscious having to memorize patterns. So our experience is terrible. I want to bring up our final guest today, okay? This is Sebastian Hoffman. And Sebastian asked a really intriguing question. Hey, welcome, Sebastian. Turn on your mic, Sebastian, and tell us where you are and read out your question for us. Hi, so my name is Sebastian. I'm from Switzerland. And I was actually wondering, because there's a lot spoken of limitless potential and we can achieve anything we want, but how can we really determine, how can we find out how big our lives are able to become? So the question is, how can we find out how big our lives are able to become? Now, this relates very much to a question that your team told me to ask you, and that is, what do you mean Can you elaborate on why not going big is bad for us? Okay, so let's explore that topic. And Sebastian, stay with us for a while. So Sebastian, there's no simple way to answer it, but literally, I don't think we know how big our lives can become. I think that's the whole point. I think what you want to aim for is a life that exceeds your expectations, right? That's, you want to go beyond what you think is actually possible for yourself. And that's how I think about it. I try to set mission level goals. Like I have three mission level goals. I want to write books that have a deep impact in the world. I want to advance flow science and training. And I want to make the world a better place for animals. Notice those are process goals. It's not, I want to win a Nobel prize for decoding the neurobiology of flow. I do, but that's not the kind of goal I would set mission level for my life. Because my life isn't a, I don't want to be able to say, well, my life is a failure because I didn't want to Nobel because I've certainly advanced flow science and research and will continue to do. High, hard goals are often goals that like, I want to get a college degree. I want to start a company. Those are things that feed into your mission level goals. And those are a little less process oriented. But I would tell you like at the, how much can I achieve level mission level goals? I think less things, more processes, right? The point is who you can become. And the point is really the becoming. There's no destination. Get rid of the idea that like, whatever this achievement is, I get there and I'm going to have the life life I want, or it's just the process. There's just today, tomorrow, the next day, and how you live it. So I think that's one. The second half, we return to Vision's question, because this is a great point. So this is really crazy. and It's very true. This is the last thing I sort of learned in writing this book. Like it was the last piece of the puzzle. It showed up and I was very shocked by this one. We are designed as biologically to go big. We are really designed to go after high, hard challenges. That's the point of the book. Like this, the system is designed to go work this way and not going big, not using the system as it's designed, not attempting to rise to our full potential is actually incredibly bad for us. Let me elaborate. There are eight known major causes of depression. There are two that attract a lot of attention. One is genetics. I can't make enough serotonin. The other is trauma. Something terrible happened to me and I'm depressed. And it turns out when you go into the data, what you find out is that genetics is never alone the cause of depression. It's genetics plus this thing that happened in my life. Genetics is only 50% of the equation. So that's not actually one of the big causes of depression. And the other one, trauma, interestingly, in the data, most of the time, the vast majority, like 99% of the time, trauma leads to post-traumatic growth, right? This is Hemingway's, the world breaks everyone and many are stronger at the broken places, but it's many. The post-traumatic stress disorder community that where trauma leads that way, that's a rarer thing compared to the growth. But the other six causes of depression, what are they? Well, one of the biggest is lack of meaningful work. What does that actually mean? 
work that I'm not curious about, work that I'm not passionate about. It's not aligned with my purpose. I don't have the autonomy to pursue the work in the way I want to. It's not affording me the possibility for mastery, and it's not giving me flow. That's what we're actually talking about when we say lack of meaningful work. The system is designed to go big, not going big is bad for us. I love that. I love that. So I want to recap. And Sebastian, firstly, thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to make you an attendee again. And thank you for asking such a beautiful question. Yeah, thank so, you, Sebastian. And by the way, I'm starting to get jealous. Everybody at Mind Valley has better hair than me. <laughs> just saying. Sebastian, you, Bianca, it's just not fair. All right, please. So, so firstly, Stephen, just want to applaud you for this. For those of you who are listening, go to theartofimpossible.com, theartofimpossible.com to follow up. I love, Stephen, what you just said about going big, about the process, about your goal being a process. In other words, it's an endless application. You are not defining yourself as winning a medal or becoming number one to say you've accomplished that goal. Rather, your goal is the continual refinement of the process. For example, mine might be bettering education. Love that. Absolutely love that. Stephen, thank you so much. I want to make sure that the people who are listening on the podcast, go check out your book. It's The Art of the Impossible. And I just want to show you the love that you're getting in the comments here. People are saying, oh my God, I love this man's heart. This is the best life call ever. I want an amazing butt and Stephen Kotler's brain. He's a real man because he says things without censoring himself. Love his sense of humor. Love his dimples. Hmm. Dimples. I've never heard that before. That is a first. That's a first. I... So, so remember, guys, remember, guys, motivation is what gets you in the game. Learning is what helps you play. Creativity helps you navigate. Flow amplifies everything else. And remember, you do not have to ice your testicles. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> I think... I don't know what happened there. <laughs> um, we just lost Stephen. I have no idea. He started laughing, he gagged, and then we lost him. I think he had to disappear. I probably had to do something involved. Nice. So thank you guys for joining the Mind Molly podcast. I will see you on next week's episode. And if you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and leave us a rating. And this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.